Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Yes, a good morning, a good afternoon, and a good evening to you, however you may be listening, and wherever you may be listening. This is the Man on the Post podcast, coming to you um, with only two members. For some reason, we've had scheduling conflicts, or people uh, just plain forgot. I think it's probably the latter. It's a Saturday night, people have other things to do, but for some reason, we're the two weirdos that they happen to have nothing on, so we just want to talk about football. Which means it gives me great pleasure to introduce the only fellow member of the panel, and the guy who's come up with, I think, half of the, well, two-thirds of the suggestions for the topics for tonight. So, thankfully, he's one of the people that turned up. It's James Rowe calling all the way from the Netherlands. James, good evening to you. Good evening, Matt. How are you keeping? Right? Good. Not too bad, not too bad. Slightly disappointed with the Fulham result, but we don't talk about results. We talk about the topics. And the first yeah. one, again, it was the first one was one of your ones. So, I'm going to let you uh, kick off because there's a kind of a weird backstory to it, isn't there? Uh, indeed, there is. It's a, it's a um, it's topic about fan protests, and uh, in this an age with the money involved and with the interests involved, how relevant and how important can fan protests be? I can only um, point to uh, recent protests here in the Netherlands regarding Willem II and Nijmegen, where they were fed up with their managers and fed up with a board level and fed up with a team playing terrible. But they took it upon themselves to storm the uh, the stadium in terms of uh, you know letting the football club know about their presence and also you know try to don't not to go to the ground on time and to to walk out in protest and it resulted in both ca- uh, cases of the um, the managers being relieved of their duties and. Uh, also resulted in the clubs going on a downward spiral. For example, um, Nijmegen subsequently got relegated, and Willem II last year, when they got rid of their manager Owen van der Looy, they harboured ambitions of um, European football and making progress. They appointed a manager who was previously assistant manager at Willem II 30 years prior and also managed Galatasaray and Club Bruges, Adrian Costa. And at the time of speaking to you, they're currently 5-1 down away to PSV Eindhoven. So it doesn't always result in the best uh, in the best uh, decisions being made at board level. And it's just a suggestion, really, as to how relevant fan processes are in this day and age and what exactly do uh, the people at board level take on board for many potential uh, fan protests really well I think it's a very interesting discussion to have and you know you coming as, as an Arsenal fan will know this there's been a, a, a swave uh, whatever you want to call it a groundswell the Arsenal fan TV is basically what I want to get to AFTV now as for legal reasons we have to call them through because through, of a cease and desist letter that Arsenal 
funny, by the way, but that's a different subject. Um, I think it comes back to what we said a couple of weeks ago in this sort of how much influence do the fans have when we were talking about when we were talking about Newcastle, and it's it's. It's not one really because the fans have the right to voice their opinion, but there are certain ways that you should go about voicing your opinion. Like the one that you gave uh, that sort of started this whole idea of was um, the Charlton Athletic fans. I forget who they were playing, but basically the whole they've had a whole. Excuse me. They've had a whole um, string of throwing things onto the pitch. I remember there was pigs a couple of. Uh, months ago or a couple of years ago tennis balls tennis balls and the latest one was uh, throwing crisp packets I don't know what that sort of symbolised but they uh, throw they threw packets of crisps onto the onto the pitch so yeah they that's their way of protesting because they've had their you know uh, marching and uh, singing charts but obviously it's gone to a level where they feel like they have to you know once it affects the game that's going on then there's it's finally a message, you know. They're finally reaching message because it's finally damaging. It's damaging the uh, pro- uh, the product of whoever the owner slash manager slash whoever they're protesting is. But I personally think that's going too far. I think there always should be a level and a line where that you don't cross when you have these sort of protests. Like, I'll, and I'll bring it back to Arsenal AFTV. I think the way they went about. Yeah, you know, would Arsene Wenger have been sacked without, or you know, re- choose to retire, whatever the decision was, without the and um, without the anger that AFTV uh, generated? And you know, if AFT- if AFTV didn't exist, I think Arsene Wenger would still be in a job because th- there wouldn't be such a demand or such a, viv- a visual, a viral demand is probably the way to put it, because the way they util- utilise social media. The way that it went viral, and the, the fact that everyone caught uh, on to it, rather than just a couple of fans singing We Want Wenger Out, the fact that it took on global attention probably resulted in that. But that is ideally the way you you want to go about it, because at no point did it affect the product on the pitch. You know, no one... You know, uh, you know, DT, famous for his banners, didn't throw his banner onto the pitch, so the game had to be delayed for five minutes or whatever. All that happened, the the game went on. They supported the players, they supported the team, and then when the final whistle came, then it was time to voice their opinion. They didn't affect the uh, the product on the field. So that's not my view on it. You know, voice your opinions in any way you want, but there is a line, and so long as it's not affecting directly what's happening on the pitch then whatever you want to do, as long as it's legal as well, as long as you want to do it, that's fine by me. As someone who's spoken to AFTV uh, three times last season, uh, I spoke about um, what I wanted to say and made a point everybody would make. And I can sum that up by saying that the people that choose to speak AFTV, they must uh, take responsibility for what they actually say. Uh, you notice that the people that speak to AFTV on a regular basis become um, uh, names, if you like, or well-known people uh, who have since spawned YouTube channels for the earth to give their own opinions, and everybody's entitled to do whatever they like, and, and you know, people take uh, responsibility for what they do and also what they say, because I've always advocated, especially in the videos that I spoke, that 
about Arsenal fans need to come together as one. You know, no no one supporter is is better than the other. No one opinion means more than the other. You have to let everybody speak. You have to respect people's opinions. And uh, I'd like to think that when I spoke to them, that my uh, my videos were well received. I didn't um, I didn't fly off the handle because obviously I'm in a position where I interview professional players and managers on a regular basis. Just out, just out of curiosity, I, just to sidetrack, you say your videos were received. Have you actually gone back and looked at your videos and the comments underneath them? I'm just curious to see whether or not you have, or do you, or do you not care about what the what the people say? I'm just curious. Uh, no, I. In, in, the very first one I looked because it was new, and you you wonder, you know, obviously because I'm not a not a um, a regular face kind of thing, and you have to laugh really at some of the things that were, that were written because if you can't laugh and have fun with it, you know, I mean, it, it, what can you do? But yeah, the, the first one I looked at, and then since then it's just you know the last one was back in April after the Atletico game, and I may well speak to them again this season. But it's it, for me, it's about voicing an opinion and having fun. You know, no no one opinion is better than the other. You know, everybody it gives the opportunity for the for the fans to have a voice. But people must take responsibility for what they say because in my uh, in my um, uh, for me for me Matt I interview professional players and managers on a regular basis. If I had a an ingrated commerce meltdown in front of the camera, I wouldn't get another professional interview for a long time. So I've got to think about what I do and uh, the way you uh, present yourself and what you say and how you say it. You know, you need to think about that, but. Most importantly, know why you're going on there to um, to speak and what exactly you're going to spell, and that that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. But do you but do you sort of agree with me that where you know the way that you protest or the way you um, demand action? Let's just let's, let's get rid of the word protest. Demand action for whatever for whatever because you know you can protest uh, if you so desire ticket prices, but you don't go about it by uh, throwing things on the pitch. You that's more of a discussion-based thing. So demand action, we'll use that, we'll use that phrase. Do you agree that there is a limit to how you demand action from your board, your manager, your players? Or do you think that sometimes it may be necessary to disrupt the product on the pitch in order to get in order to get results? No, I agree with you. I think there must be a limit. Um, I think that the um, the social media as well, I think that certain people on social media think they have to say um i think um you know that they think perhaps they have more say than what they actually have because they're not in the boardroom they're not behind the scenes they're not involved with speaking with professional players and managers at that club they're not involved in, in having communication with the press officer for example and these are all little things behind the scenes that make a football club and a fan is exactly that. A fan is someone who supports. A fan is someone who, who who chooses to go. We spoke about it in previous pods as well. If someone completely at the end of their tether and is not enjoying it anymore, and is um, you know becoming depressive and is becoming upset, they have a simple choice not to go. Have to go. It's a simple choice that somebody makes. And I think sometimes, especially with the might of social media, all clubs, not just a particular club. But, you know, as we all know in the park, you know, you have good and bad fans at every single club in the world. But I think with the um, with the power of, of social 
yeah i think some people that are in the spotlight kind of thing i think they think they speak for others when in reality they're only speaking for themselves now now, now i want to bring up a point that you a point that you made just then is the fact that there's no uh fans on the ball that's one thing i've noticed is you don't get to see because um, you see these kind of protests coming from from abroad occasionally as well um there are various things like i know i know there's one of you know you mentioned the dutch fans not turning up for a certain minute i'm 90 percent sure there's an italian team that did something similar it may have been it may have been juventus or one of the big clubs i know someone didn't turn up for us for a certain amount of time but you don't see these kind of protests coming from Germany, for instance, where you know, everyone knows the German fan model. You know, you can't have a foreign owner can't own more than forty nine percent of the club. The rest of it's got to be owned by the fans. You never see this from Barcelona as well, because everyone knows that story where everyone is a sort of owner slash shareholder in the club as well. So they get they get views, they get views on the board. So do you think that's sort of a way to quell these protests and sort of? I'm saying pro- I'll, I'll go back to protest because it's the easiest thing in my mind. Uh, to sort of dispel these protests in future is um, to get fans on the board, or at least at minimum to increase fan engagement uh, between the between the supporters and the board. That way, these things won't happen because they'll know that you know they can continually speak to board members and executives on a daily basis rather than having to wait until Saturday, 3 o'clock, when they know they're going to get their voices heard. No, I agree. I think there should be more fan engagement, but I think the Premier League in particular is in a different stratosphere now where the interest is so high and we're talking about millions and millions and millions that the people in these positions at the high end, with all due respect, they're not going to entertain any notion or any opinion from any ordinary fan because this is about um, sponsorship and commercial um, parts of the of the running of a day-to-day club where it could be the difference between making a profit and not making a profit. And I don't think the people at the top end of those clubs, especially in the Premier League, would uh, would take on board uh, any points from ordinary fans, however relevant and however good they may well be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to keep these discussion, discussion short, but I think me and James sort of have the same views and um, ideas on these sort of things. So we want to move on because we don't want to be just bleating about the same sort of things. If we had more people, then we'd have more time to discuss this. But you know, there's, a, there's a time to move on. I think that time is now. because And also, mainly because I really want to get into this next subject because it's something yeah. I've been eagerly wanting to talk about ever since I saw the news. And that is yeah. this, this week we had the... Um, European uh, uh, competitions draw. We had the Champions League draw and the Europa League draw, but a sort of sideshow from what happened from the uh, uh, drawing out of uh, uh, pots, the little various balls that for some reason Hernan Crespo had problems doing. Who'd have known that? Um, UEFA are in discussions. This uh, the main uh, newspaper I've heard this one was Die Bild in Germany are in discussion to have a third European club competition to run underneath the UEFA Europa League. It didn't go into much detail about who would be invited in or whether or not it would um, affect the the way the Champions League and Europa League are going to work, whether or not teams are going to have to be sort of bumped down. So instead of having four Premier League teams in the Champions League... um, 
and three in the Europa League. Maybe it's going to be three, three, and then one in the in the third competition. There, there wasn't much detail brought out, but I just think it's fascinating that was UEFA still, you know, they just want more because. Because uh, the way, because the way, because the way they uh, proposed this UEFA Nations League was so they could get more games. Uh, there's obviously a commercial interest into it, more games, more broadcasting, more sponsorships, so on and so forth. But personally, I'm all for this third league because I want as many clubs playing European competition as is humanly possible. Because I can, I'm a Fulham fan. I you know, uh, twice in my Fulham supporting lifetime, we've actually been, um, we've been, to, we've been to, we've been to Europe. We had the 2010 run, the famous one, and we had the not so famous 2011-12 when we got knocked out by Odense. But anyway, I love those days, and I want to experience them again. I want to have, you know, some team from Lithuania come to the Craven Cottage and bring. Uh, no, 500 fans and for, and for it to be the biggest day of their club's career because they're playing a Premier League team. I want to go out to Greece. I mean, I can't, I can't afford it, but I'd love the idea of going out to Greece for a game and playing the fourth best team in the Greek league. For instance, Gibraltar have got are now in the UEFA, are now in the UEFA competitions. Who wouldn't want a day, an away day in Gibraltar for crying out loud? I am all for this because I want as many Euro, as many clubs playing. Across Europe as possible, because I'll get to you in a second, James. This is something I really, I really care about. Is I there, know, the, the subject I was looking forward to the most, so yeah. it would be the one we spend the most time on, I believe. Indeed, but there are clubs like Leicester who, far for their one year in the Champions League, are probably never going to get into Europe again. But you'll see that it's one of the, it was one of the greatest things they ever had because in their group stage, I think it was Copenhagen, Prague, and uh, Porto. I believe Ooh. it was. And I believe it was Bruges. Bruges. Sorry, sorry, my mistake. But anyway, the fact they were going out to these great European cities. Who doesn't want that again? Your middle-of-the-road Premier League clubs, let's say a West Ham, in years gone by, a West Brom, you're telling me they wouldn't want the opportunity, even even if it isn't the Champions League or the Europa League. The chance that, rather than having playing Southampton and West Ham and Newcastle and the occasional glamour tie away to Accrington Stanley that they haven't done for 50-odd years or whatever it is that people seem to look at, away days within within their own country, expand it. Away days abroad. Who doesn't want that idea? So I And I also don't think it's diluting the idea of Europe as well. You know, as a thing as well, there are still great, you know, clubs that you are never going to play. You know, West Ham are probably never going to play Sparta Prague, say. But in this new competition, they get the opportunity. They get the opportunity to go to places they've never seen before and probably never will. James, I go, I go over to you. So that's that's my bit over. But James, no. are you a fan of this third competition? Just to start with, first and foremost, I am not that old but I remember the old Cup Winners Cup days which my club actually won in 1994 and it remains one of the greatest nights that I've ever had as an Arsenal fan winning that Cup Winners Cup uh, 25 years, years ago this season back then you had the Cup Winners of the domestic leagues going into a specific European competition the Cup Winners of different countries playing one another it was a recognised competition it was uh, done away with to make uh, to, stream, to streamline to only have the Champions League and the Europa League, and it smacks very much as if they're trying to, to 
to bring it back again. Uh, you mentioned Leicester, Matt. Leicester, completely agree. Copenhagen, Bruges and Porto, wonderful. Nearly reaching the semi-finals, giving Atletico a massive shock and they could have very well reached the semis. But they earned that opportunity by winning the Premier League. It was earned. A European club football has to be earned. If you look at um, if you look at the, the the qualifiers for the Europa League and the Champions League, how many shocks there were, especially from home. And if you look at the the new names in the Europa League draw in particular, who have qualified for the first time, I believe Dudelange from uh, Luxembourg have qualified for the first time. Is these are new names? This is something completely new. But you have to remember as well that I've. I've noticed in recent years the ignorance in terms of when seasoned teams come up against lower teams and to think, oh, we'll put them away or I don't fancy going because it's not Champions League or I've never heard of them, I don't really want to go. As as someone who's been a fan of European football ever since I was a young, young boy and being able to support and watch Ajax on a regular basis here in the Netherlands, I've been watching European football uh, firsthand uh, also with my own club Arsenal in London uh, for more than, a de- more than a decade now and I've seen teams from Slovenia, Slovakia, France Germany, Spain, Italy from all over Europe but I believe that European football has to be earned if you're going to have a, a, a new competition rather than use quotes such as teams that rarely qualify for the Europa League group stage you can turn that on its head and say right, the domestic cup winners of these competitions going to a separate competition because even though I was only a small child, a small boy that cup winning cup competitions that Arsenal played in we played the like Torino Standard Liège, Odense um, Paris Saint-Germain Auxerre, um, Palmer in the final, you know they were fantastic fantastic European nights and um, I just think that European football it needs to be earned. People need to respect it more as well. I think uh, I think people are far too quick, especially in the Champions League draw, draw that was made uh, on Thursday afternoon. People were coming with the most uh, with their opinions of the draw about who's going to get through within the hour. And I looked at it and I respect everybody's opinion, but the ignorance to suggest that teams like uh, AKA Athens and Red Star Belgrade are simply just making up the numbers and have no hope of getting through or even qualifying for the Europa League. In my opinion, it's just silly. Uh, People need to look at the whole um, picture of who they've drawn and the fact that they're playing six games, three at home and three away, and every opponent needs to be respected. Okay, I... I'm, 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 I'm agreeing with you on most points, but I would say when you said European football has to be earned, I think UEFA have, you know, burned that have have already burned that bridge and said goodbye to that. By the way, that they've got you know half of the uh, Champions League uh, group participants are from the top are from the top four uh, leagues: England, Spain, Germany, and Italy. So the fact that you've got and the fact that the team that finishes fourth in England goes straight into the group stage, whereas the champion Celtic, the champions of Scotland, have got to go all the way back to like the second and third qualifying round. I think UEFA have got away with you have to earn it because you don't anymore. I will somewhat agree with you. Let's see if we can find some common ground. If this is a third 
competition and they street as you say a streamliner and you know rejig things and we have the champions league just for the champions the, yes, europa, for league, the europa league for um say the main domestic cup winners and then this third competition for the... I, don't, I know every single country doesn't have a, uh, their uh, second domestic cup. Like in England, we have the we have the League Cup, secondary to the FA Cup. I know everyone has their domestic cup, so you can have the Europa League for that. Um, and then some, maybe maybe bring maybe the, the uh, third competition, maybe it's, uh, bring back the Fair Play Award, the the best um, or the you know best uh, behaved sides from each country that's their reward for you know playing the game in the right way sort of thing if if we go that way then i then i'd understand it but i'm also would be okay if you opened it up to you know um the eighth best team in the premier league and whoever doesn't qualify um, out of out of Italy, I don't know how the table works. The seventh best there, the seventh best team from Germany. I'd be okay for I'd be okay for that as well. But I, f- I think it does need to be streamlined. If you think there's 48 teams starting in the Europa League, uh, upon which uh, upon which uh, 24 of those teams will progress to the 32, and then then have eight teams dropping down from the Champions League. Now, if you look how often a Champions League um, team which has dropped down into the Europa League goes on to win the Europa League it can leave a sour taste in the mouth I fully agree that the champions should be for champions but I think the commercialism of football and the fact that with the great respect nobody wants to see Frederick Vardos play Sparta Prague they are two huge clubs in their own countries I've and, and they're great clubs, but I think the commercialism has put pay to a potential knockout round of Ferenc Varas against um, Prague, and that being sent live on TV. Um, I think with the seeing the best teams in the, and the best players that some people want to see Madrid against them. Um, against Juventus people want to see a, um, a Valencia against Manchester United for example people want to see the bigger clubs play one another when I personally take a lot of uh, a lot of interest in, in other in other um, teams as well my team have, uh, have had a Europa League group against uh, Volska Poltava from Ukraine sporting Lisbon of Portugal and Karabakh of Azerbaijan I'm already look, I'm already looking the possibilities of going back to go to two of the three Europa League games. Uh, they're not the biggest teams in the world. Um, Sporting Lisbon is well known, of course. Baltava, not so much. But it won't stop me going because it's still European football. I, I think UEFA could help them themselves by streamlining it, learning it a bit. I agree with you in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the allocation slots. But I just think the commercial is so big now that if you put it back to way it, the way is but it was, but it was a lot more honest and a lot more fair. Um, you, I think people are going to put up potential matchups when, you know, you you got to be, if you are the champion of one country, in theory, you should go straight into a potential group. You shouldn't have to go uh, into more qualifying rounds and, and coefficient points. Because I don't think in the 1970s and the 1980s, when you had teams like Club Bruges and Hamburg winning the European Cup and, and Porto winning the European Cup I don't think 
back then you had people going, oh, well, the coefficient's this and that, so we might not get in. It was, you know, we were in Europe, we're here to win it. I mean, you look at not only four years, they won it twice. And, um, you know, back-to-back as well, and, and, and it was like the pride of the, con- pride of the country. And I know times change, but I just think that they, they can just think things about a bit. I just think with, with the interest at association level, though, I just think they're so big that, you know, to keep the smaller countries on side rather than completely, you know, cast them to one side. I think UEFA are just being uh, um, diplomatic in, in keeping them on side and, and, and giving them the opportunity to, to qualify rather than um, casting them to one side and then burning their bridges with certain associations, I believe. Yeah, but... As you said, the, the way the commercialism and the way that everything's driven by money has gone, I think that because we, we, we've basically we've reached the point of no return with this stuff, so I think yeah, it's up to us to. It, it, and I, mean, I talk about protesting, you know, pushing back to someone, but I think on some time it's up for us to you know accept it and then run with it and try and make the. I, I didn't want to make this political, but take it with Brexit. I didn't want you know I very I very remain. But I think there will be some good to come out of uh, leaving the European Union. I can't believe it's going to be all bad. Similar to this, I, you know, in theory, don't want this because I agree with you that European football should be earned. But if we're going to have, you know, if they're you know pushing this thing on us, let's try and find some positives about it and let's you know let's embrace it. It won't be you know it can't all be bad. Yes, you know. Fuller may have to go out to, um, you know, say the uh, the you know the Russian. It goes all the way over to you know the the um, the border with China basically, and you know, I think North Korea as well. If if we have to, if we're drawn away to them, you know, for in a in a knockout round, so be it. I look forward to the ten Fulham fans that are going to be there, the hearty soldiers that they are. I look forward to them coming over, and then the ten fans from that club coming over as well let's embrace it let's enjoy there's got to be some good there's got to be some good to come out because like i said european football is one of the greatest things a fan can experience absolutely it's, i know I, I fully agree and i must take this opportunity matt to, to say this is just my opinion my club played champions league football for 20 years and it was taken for granted by so many that Arsenal will just qualify and everything will be all right and everything will tick along. I didn't feel when I went to Champions League games through the years the raucous atmosphere of we're in this competition to win it, let's go full pelt. I felt that specifically with my team being in it for 20 years that they just accepted, oh, you know, it's, this is another season of Champions League football, uh, you know, uh, let, let's just, you know, I'll go lock up at the stadium and I will beat this one and I will beat that one and we get beat in the last 16. I would much preferred Arsenal to have, I know you can't pick and choose, but I would have rather have had five years of instead of the 20, but yeah, three years of, of going full pelt to try to win the thing. Rather than just uh, rather than just uh, make up the numbers kind of thing, because I I, I I deliberately prioritised the Champions League games through the years, and as the years rolled on, I just felt that the the ignorance and 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 the um, and the expectancy that oh well, it doesn't matter who we get, we'll get through to the knockout rounds. I I was at games in recent years against Monaco where you know before I went into the stadium, I heard one guy say, "Oh, we're going to bat them four 0 tonight," and I said, "Excuse me, they got through a group with." Bayer Leverkusen, Zenith St. Petersburg. 
so they must have something about them, and they completely took Arsenal to school. So I think that I completely agree with you. European football is tremendous for fans to experience, but I think the ignorance is shown by certain fans when they qualify and when certain draws are made as regards to potential opponents is a little bit dangerous because, you know, these these are very, very good teams. These are teams... I mean, you look you say Red Star, Belgrade, the pride that they are... Um, that they've shown since they've been back. And I watched them in the qualifiers against Celtic's opponent, Suduva, at home in Belgrade. And yes, it's only a team from Lithuania, but Red Star looked fantastic. And every team in every fan in that stadium was really raucous and singing their hearts out. So when Paris Saint-Germain, Napoli and Liverpool go to Belgrade, especially in the away fixture, they're going to get that and then some. And I think the fans can really help them to get positive results. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I agree with you on the point about Belgrade. Anyone who knows me knows that I absolutely love just the passion and the determination and the never give upness of Eastern Euro- of Eastern European side. Yes. Um, Liverpool will probably probably will win out in Belgrade, but my word, Red Star Belgrade will make them fight for every single thing they have. You know, it, 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 I absolutely I absolutely agree with you there. And what I will say is this: this whole point about the ignorance, this is going um, uh, uh, to uh, let's get the word out. This is going to open up and uh, allow more. T- as I said, it's going to allow more teams to get into you. So a Southampton fan who doesn't know anything about you know the the Belgian league or the Lithuanian league. Let them have that. You know, let them go into Europe and experience the fact that okay, I've, I used to think the Portuguese league was a little bit terrible, but tell you what, after playing the fourth best team, I don't. I don't think it's so sure. Give them, you know, give them the, give them more examples. Give them an experience. Let them see firsthand that these that these um, sides aren't as easy as you think they will be. No, I fully agree. We're talking about Southampton now. I remember when they played Vitesse in the pre-qualifiers and they put Vitesse away over two legs and they were drawn against Danish side Michiland. And before the draw was made, people were going, oh, you know, group phase for Southampton, this and that. And um, they didn't get through against Michiland. And it was a bit of a shock. For Burnley, I remember listening to a football podcast when Burnley qualified for Europe last year and a football journalist said, and I quote, a successful Europa League campaign for Burnley will be to reach the out phases. But this is a team that still had to qualify and they struggled against Aberdeen. They were very done well to beat Istanbul and they were put to the sword by Olympiakos. So this is someone who is involved in reporting on football, who states when a club has just qualified that only knockout football will suffice. But yet he needs to be aware that they still had to pre-qualify. So the ignorance of the fact it doesn't matter who they're playing the pre-qualifying, they're going to be all right. If you if you just take a moment to go through those results with a fine tooth comb, you'll see many, many surprises. And the ignorance, I believe it doesn't help. Like, for example, PSV um, have been drawn in a Champions League group with Inter Milan, with Barcelona and with Tottenham. Their home form is very, very good. Their fans will be completely up for it and they'll be completely raucous. I can't see them being... Um, completely trounced in every single home game they play. The same goes for Ajax as well, because obviously I'm based here. Ajax played Bayern Munich, Benfica and AKA AK Athens. And it's going to be, um, I think they're going to win at least one home game. 
And I think that people just think, seem to think, oh, the draw's made, one plus one is two, that one there, that one there, that one there. But we all know it. football is unpredictable. European football, European football certainly doesn't work like that. And you have to take it as you find it and have to wait and see what happens and enjoy many a twist and turn. Absolutely. And you know, enjoy any twist and turn on a European season and you enjoy many twists and turns on domestic season and uh, that, that, that link doesn't work I was trying to link it through to our next subject but I just didn't I, I didn't have the source for it. I think I'm just too exhausted from a fascinating second debate but the third debate of tonight and James this is another one of yours so I'm going to let you uh, I'm going to let you introduce it yeah um, I would like to uh, suggest about the sackings and fans proclaiming that managers should be sacked how soon is soon I'm fortunate enough to interview professional managers on a regular basis and having spoke to quite a few uh, I'd like to give a few examples for example I recently spoke to Danny Cowley of Lincoln City who told me the following continuity is so rare in football and when I get to um, organise my squad and work with my players we're on a journey and when you uh, have a seasons where you look to improve, as time goes on, when you stay at a club, you know exactly what players you need. Uh, speaking to Modest Stan, who won the first, Dutch First Division with Vefe uh, Venlo, when I arrived at Vefe uh, Venlo, he told me that um, he told me that uh, there were characters in the dressing room that wasn't conducive to a winning mentality. So he had to get rid of them first before he could mould a team in order to win. I think people advocating that managers being sacked after a very, very short period don't really realise what managers have to do when they first arrive at clubs. And as I say, I'm in a position where I speak to them on a regular basis and I could give many examples. But I just wanted to give those two because I thought they were relevant. Um, you know, people advocating that a manager should be sacked after four games when they've only arrived two months before, you've got to assess a squad. You've got to look if you can get your message across. You've got to work with players which are not necessarily your players. And I just think that, that again, with the social media nature of, oh, we've lost four in four, sack him. There's also real money involved in paying off contracts and, and all these different kind of things. And, and what, what is extremely new, well, I believe it's new, uh, like a, um, what do they call it, like a, um, a confidentiality agreement where you're not allowed to talk about uh, what, and, and things like that. I, I believe that you should give managers as much time as possible. Obviously not, you know, 22 years like Arsene Wenger, but I believe that managers should get more protection and that the people pulling, the chairman pulling the trigger. Years ago, you used to have chairmen that were so consequent in their decisions because they was involved in the club, normally the local club, and that they was aware of the, the value of money. And they was aware of the consequences of sacking a manager. You've also got to turn it on, turn it on its head, where some managers get sacked and they're never heard of again. And you've got to think of livelihoods being taken away, reputations being smeared. And you know, you imagine in any other job in the world, being in a job, trying to do the job to the best of your ability, and have people throwing abuse at you for ninety minutes every week, or even through the week. So I advocate managers getting as much time as possible but I also advocate chairman being as uh, um, shrewd as they used to be many many years ago I know times change but being shrewd in, in, in being patient and waiting to see because if you have stability it can it can help an awful lot 
and to pull trigger too quickly could be um, could be uh, could have uh, could have um, effects for certain teams. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, very, the very good in- introduction there. And it's a point that we would, if we if we were having this same discussion this time last year, where we were talking about famously uh, Frank de Boer got sacked after four games at you know at Crystal Palace, and the, it's the point that you make continuity is you know Frank de Boer was given an idea and given a transfer budget and. And as you said, you know, over time it would have worked out, but fans are just too trigger happy in this day and age. Like I'm already hearing the, the stuff on social media that uh, West Ham fans are wanting uh, Manuel Pellegrini to go. You know, Pellegrini, who was good enough. I mean, he, he had the he had the financial backing previously, but got Manchester City to win the to win the Premier League. He is not a, mm-hmm. no, a, a bad manager. Give him time. This will all work out. The board gave him a transfer budget and transfer and gave him uh, signings over the summer. Let him implement his thing. If things are working out, we've got the international break now. That gives him a, that gives him an extra week to sort of write what's been going wrong, what's been going right. Okay, we need to tweak this, this, and this. Mm. Uh, Ryan Fredericks, you're playing right back. We may need to shift to a wing back sort of thing. Give him time to work it out. And it's something that I think I believe it was Robbie Savage um, said that he'd give uh, managers at least two transfer windows to get to um, before any sort of you know pressure, be it external from the fans or internal from the board, start to have an start to have an effect. He'd give two transfer windows. So basically if you come in in the summer, um, you know, um, after the season ends, so start of June, then you get the summer transfer window of July and August, and you get the January transfer window as well. If then by February things aren't starting to work out, then maybe there's you start having talks of right is this the right guy we've given him you know uh, 20 games it would be about that time 20 games and he's brought in you know seven players this clearly isn't working out we need to we need to rethink this but to for fans to be so adamant so early on is yeah. just is just outrageous so i do agree i and I also think I think it may be mine, Sam. I'm plucking names out of the air, but I think this is right. Um, where he gave the idea that um, uh, international managers, for instance, it should be a four-year cycle. You know, no extended four-year cycle from World Cup to World Cup. And I think there's an there's an idea there that every manager should have at least one year from you know. Um, I don't you know. I, don't, I doubt FIFA or UEFA or the FA or the various FAs would ever in- implement a rule. But you have where if a manager signs a contract, he has to see out that first year of his contract. Because as you said, it, yes, the manager gets would get a huge payoff if he signed a three-year deal and is gone after eight months. But as you said, there's livelihoods to that. His his confidence yeah. will take massive. Yeah. That's why I think David Moyes is. No, is the manager he is today? I think he still hasn't recovered from what happened at Manchester United. The way you know he was brought up as this chosen one. He, he finally had his dream job, ideally, no, arguably the biggest job in world football. And the fact that he was gone from there before he even had a chance to, before he had a chance to, you know, right any, right any wrongs in a second summer window. Mm-hmm. It, I think that's just mentally. He broke him down because then he went to Sunderland and got relegated, and then West Ham. He struggled there. It can have such an effect on a manager when he when they're sacked like that. 
I th- I think there's there's some there's got to be something done about this because as you know, go back to what you said, continuity. We had this at Fulham. We had three managers in the space of you know in a single season: Martin Yol, Rene Mullenstein, Felix McGath. And I think we were too and we were too trigger happy with Rene Mullenstein, who I think would have kept us up. But no, as soon as something was going, it was all going wrong. But as soon as there was a slight downturn, excuse me, as soon as there was a slight downturn. Boom, Mullenstein's gone, McGaff comes in, that's it. You know, and that was more or less the final nail in the coffin for Fulham season that year. So I completely agree with you with what you say on things like continuity and the you know, livelihood of a manager who, who loses his job. I absolutely agree with you. Well, as I say, I, the continuity comes from speaking to Danny Cowley, and that's what he told me. And look how how Lincoln team is on form. Well, again, today, 3-0, I think they're uh, the top of the league. Uh, you know, and they, they want to improve, improve year on year. In the case with Flank de Boer, Flank de Boer signed that contract with Palace. And he took it upon himself to ask his Crystal Palace players to do something that they can't do. Uh, obviously, here in the Netherlands, you have a youth academy and you have a certain way of playing. Ajax, that is a certain way that they learn from the ages of um, between eight all the way up into entering the first team, playing the same way, being aware of the same things. So the board has gone into a changing room where he's trying to ask people to do something they can't do. But then you're asking for problems. If you also look at the, the appointments being made, um, I look at things from a... An, a, um, a, a a point like this um, if you are approached by a club to manage a club to be the figurehead of that team to pick that team to deal with the daily running of that team if you have no command of the local language uh, that's already not a red flag but you're already you know you're, it's not the greatest place to start from you look at Philip Koku at Fenerbahce left PSV after five years, has took his Dutch assistant to Fenerbahce. They've had a very, very difficult start. Uh, I don't, at the time of speaking, I don't think they've won in, they haven't won in the Turkish league yet, hasn't secured his first victory. Uh, speaking in press conferences, obviously not in Turkish, in English or via a translator. And yes, we have international players all over the world now, but to get your message it's, it's very, very important. As I say, speaking to players as well, I've spoken to many, many players in the last two years who tell me about managers they've played under when I asked them and they come with ideas such as um, uh, players um, citing managers they've had that could really read players not just on the pitch, but off it as well. Because you're dealing with players that, that can go through maybe a, a tragedy or, or divorce or, or personal circumstance. And, and these are all things that can change in the blink of an eye. Like, for example, uh, former Ajax uh, manager Peter Boss went to Dortmund and you had uh, Dembele not turning up for training, trying to force through a transfer. And fans thinking this is acceptable. Uh, thinking this is not a problem, you know, to get what you want. Oh, if you have to do that because he's such a great player. But Boss, when he was speaking about it, said that, you know, he would go into training and he would say, where's Dembele? Where's he? Where is he? He didn't turn up. Is he okay? He's not hurt. He didn't get in an accident or anything like that. First and foremost, he's thinking about a player who he's counting on to be part of his squad, not being present at training. Uh, you know, his first, his first thoughts were, well, he's not here, is he okay? And um, I just think that 
fans really need to take a step back, Matt, and realise the, the responsibility that managers have. It's not a world where you just turn up, get paid millions, get sacked get sacked and go round again. As I say, I'm fortunate enough the last two years to have spoken to many players and managers and it gives me a different perspective and it gives me a different insight. It doesn't make my opinions any better. It's just a, 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 a situation in which I'm grateful for. Yeah. And, and in, the case, in the case of managers as well, you know, my, my team has had the, has the first manager for 22 years. We lost our first two games and you had Emery out, hashtags, and I, that, that me and fits of laughter because I couldn't take them seriously. I'm, not, I'm uh, 90% sure the Emery out stuff was just sarcastic. I'm 95, 90 to 95% sure that was sarcastic. Possibly, possibly. He signed a two-year deal. As a, I've been a fan for over 30 years. He can see that deal out at the very least. If you think as well, he's Spanish, he's trying to speak English to the best of his ability and humorous in his press conferences. I don't think there's many British managers that will go abroad and show as much charisma and speaking the local language in their press conferences. And, um, you know, so it swings and roundabouts, really, but fans must give, uh, must cut the managers a bit of slack. Yeah, and Because I'm... you imagine... No, go ahead. You imagine being relieved if you... Being imagine relieved of your duties, not being able to find another job. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of Alan Kirbisley. Alan Kirbisley was interviewed for the England manager's job, along with um, in 2008, along with McLaren and along with Allardyce. Now, for me, he was a standout candidate and he deserved to get the England manager's job. Didn't get it. He also, when he managed West Ham, when he managed Charlton, at times they were punching above their weight and playing fantastic football. Kirbisley, I believe, has turned down many jobs when he was at Charlton. And you you, you looked from afar and you thought, you're really, really good. Why not take that step and prove it even more? When was the last time Kirbisley had a job? But yet, look at what he did at Charlton, look at what he did at West Ham. He's an excellent manager, but because he hasn't managed for years on end... His, his talent is, as a manager, in my opinion, has gone by the wayside, and that's a massive, massive shame. Yeah, absolutely. And just one final part, I want to agree with what you said, you know, when you talked about the, the Dortmund manager having to deal with uh, Dembele going on various drops. It, it's a point that I've made thousands of times, and I will continue to make. Any time a team is struggling, yes, the manager takes should take some blame because he sets up the team and, you know, picks the picks up the team and sets right at corners, you need to do this, this and this. But the players need to take as much, you know, not maybe not maybe more, but as much blame as the managers. I'll give you I'll give you two examples. The Frank de Boer one, I think one of his games was away at Burnley. And he um, I think when the game was nil nil uh, I think Damien Delaney missed from uh, from five yards out or something like that. Now that's not the manager's fault. It, he he sets up the system so that Delaney is in a position to you know uh, to score from that because I think I believe it was from a corner. He sets up the teams that puts Damien Delaney in a position, but the players have to finish that off. And the second example, it's a much more recent one: Romelu Lukaku against Spurs. Now Jose Mourinho sets Man United up in such a way that Romelu Lukaku is um, pressurizing the Tottenham back line, so he's there for when the I think it was a, a misguided back pass comes through. Lukaku rounds the goalkeeper. That's Lukaku's goal to score. It's not, and you know, admittedly, no, Tottenham were the best side of the day. But if that goes in, you do not know what happens for the you know result of the rest of the game. Maybe it's a one-all draw. Maybe Man United go on to win one-nil. We don't know, but. In that situation, Romelu Lukaku has to put it in. 
and that's something that you know will not you know didn't get talked about because all the focus was then on Jose Mourinho you know clapping the fans at the end and his post-match press conference because it's you know pressure on Jose Mourinho. So absolutely, managers should take some blame, but the players are just as culpable and responsible in that situation. In that situation as well. Absolutely, and you see the uh, the how much player power has become apparent in in years gone by. Years ago, years and years ago, you, you didn't have the player hold cards. It was club holding all the cards, and now it's the other way around. You know, players striking to get the move they want. You know, if you're all that good, don't worry, they'll come in for you. Don't worry. You know, you don't have to go at the, at the drop of a hat. You don't have to leave uh, the club where you're playing regular football. Um, to sit on a bench that's not necessarily going to improve your career but I think certain players especially not just on the pitch with errors but off the pitch in terms of their choices I think especially with transfers they think uh, oh uh, a club's coming in for me I've got to go now otherwise the chance will never come again but especially if you're a young player that if you're that good they'll come back in for you and we were talking about it in a previous pod as well you look at transfer deadline day transfer deadline day has become as uh, important as, as, as a cup final in terms of the build up, in terms of the hashtag this and the. the uh, unve- I mean, you used to have a, a, a player unveiling with just a manager, player, and holding up the shirt. Now there's a, a social media video with all the most ridiculous ideas of a drone landing on a pitch, someone dressed up in fancy dress to reveal who it is. And you just wonder where it's all going to end, really. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, do you wonder where that's going to end? Well, I know where this podcast's going to end, and that's right now. Because we've run out of time, we've run out of debates, but, but by all means, feel free to send in any debates, because we were short on topics for tonight. It was only um, about uh, 20 minutes before we started recording that James came up with the third one. So we are running out on ideas. So please feel free to send in your ideas for what we should for what we should talk about. We're grateful, and as I said, it's going to be the motto, no reasonable subject will ever be turned down. So, all that's left for us to do is to say goodbye. It is a goodbye from James. Goodbye, everybody. Uh, oh, please, also, sorry, one more thing. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Man on the Post. James is on Twitter, and he is... At James Rowe NL. Didn't want to leave out that important bit. I'm on Twitter as well, at MattRee63. That's all from us tonight, and please do always remember to have your man on the post. <laughs>